His work for our sins which are, from our perspective, uncountable and infinite. While we have committed a finite number of sins, there is an infinite death, debt and death that comes from them. And this great Savior has wiped it all away. And even saying that, as overwhelming as that is, we understand that we don't understand the depth of what He has accomplished. But for what we do understand, we express our great gratitude, we express our worship, and we offer to you our lives in humble submission and obedience. And Father, might our time together this evening, as we have read, as we have sung, and as we hear this word, and as we come to this table, might it conform us in greater harmony to this great Savior who has accomplished a task that was impossible for us and incomprehensible to us. He did this deed with with horror at the prospect of being the recipient of your wrath. And yet he did it with joy so that he might redeem us. Might that compel us to him and might we delight in him. Because of that reality, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Of all the things that we don't like to do, and all the things we don't like to think about, perhaps the thing that we like to think about the least is the prospect of death. I'd been a pastor, I think, three, maybe four months, when Martin's funeral home called me up and said, we have a family that doesn't have a church home and their mother and wife has just passed away and I was wondering if you'd be interested in doing the service. I had a grand total, I think, of one funeral under my belt. (laughs) And so I was a little bit trepidatious about taking on the task, but I knew it was a gospel opportunity. And so I said, absolutely, give me the information about the family and I'm happy to go meet them. I went over to their home later that day and started getting some information from them about their family life and about the mother in the home and the wife in the home and just hearing their life stories and then began to think with them about how we might plan the service. And I said, you know, I know you don't have a church home. We'd be happy to have the service at our sanctuary if you'd like to do that, if that'd be a help to you. No, we really don't want to do that. Well, you know, if you don't want to do it there, I'm, we, can, we can do it here at the funeral home. They have a chapel. Well, we really, we really don't want to do that either. Can we just do a graveside service? I said, well, sure. You know, it's going to be limited a little bit as to what we can do. Um, but, but we'd be happy to do that if that's what you would desire. So I talked to them a little bit more about the components of what we might do at the graveside. And we talked through that and 
one of them asked me, well, how long do you think that's going to take? I said, I, I don't know, 25, maybe 30 minutes. Can you do it shorter? Like 15 minutes? Sure. I'm here to serve you. And let me help you. I was stunned. Two days later, I went back to the funeral home, met with the funeral director, got in the funeral director's car, and we made our way to the cemetery for the service. And I related to him that story. And I, I expressed my... Uh, amazement that the family wanted something so short. I almost want to use the word trite for a woman who had been part of their lives for decades. He wasn't the least bit surprised. What, why, why, did it, why do people do that? I asked him uncomprehendingly because he said people don't want to face death And don't want to face their own mortality. And the shorter they can keep the service, the less they have to face their own mortality. And that's why they do that. I've never forgotten that conversation. I read this week that when Venezuelan dictator Hugo Chavez died, his final words, according to the guards who were there, were, quote, I don't want to die. Please don't let me die. We recoil from death. It is our enemy. It may come in harsh ways or it may come in easier ways, but it is always an enemy. In the original creation, man was made to live, not to die. Death is against us and we are against death. Yet, brothers and sisters, as much as we hate death and as much as we pull back from death, our Savior recoiled from death infinitely more. We read passages like Hebrews 12, and we might be tempted to think that while there was suffering involved, that Jesus went to the cross almost with a smile on His face, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. He didn't. He went with a settled confidence in God and with a resolute commitment to complete his mission. He went with joyful obedience to his father. He delighted to do the will of his father. But he did not go easily and he did not go blissfully. He went hating death. And abhorring the effects of death, even while knowing what his own death would accomplish. He went praying that God might accomplish his plan some other way. There was unimaginable agony in him as he prepared to go to the cross. We see that agony repeatedly in the account that is before us in Mark chapter 14. He is, at the beginning, very distressed. That word very distressed has the sense of he is horrified by the prospect of the cross. Again, verse 33, he is troubled. He's in anguish. He's stirred up. 
He is, verse 34, deeply grieved. It is to the point that it almost crushed him to death to contemplate going to the cross. And he is praying that he might not have to go through the hour, verse 35, or drink the cup. Whatever else you think about Jesus and the cross, do not think that this was easy for him. It was not. This was no easy task for our Savior. Death is our enemy. And it was his enemy as well. As we come to Good Friday in the communion table, let us remember the horror that the cross and the death was to Christ by meditating on the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden. In that prayer, we find the content of his reticence, And we find the triumph of his submission. Note this evening, three components to Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays to his Father. First of all, Jesus prays to his Father. Notice verse 35. It tells us that when Jesus began to pray, it tells us rather that Jesus began to pray. But then verse 36 tells us explicitly who Jesus addressed in his prayer. He was praying to his father. When I wrote this the other day, what I originally wrote was he was praying to the father. That's also true. He's praying to the father. But notice how Mark records it. He was saying, Abba, Father. He was not just praying to the Father, but he was using a term of endearment and intimacy. Never would a slave use that kind of terminology of his master. Never would any Jew have have approached God in that manner, calling him either Father or Abba. Yet in addressing God in prayer, Jesus always calls him father. But here, in this singular instance, in his recorded prayers, he adds the title, the name, the affectionate word, Abba. In fact, that term, Abba, would have been a common term to hear in a Jewish home in that day. It was a term of endearment. Daddy, if you will, Papa, Pa, in our home, Pops, my growing up home, my children don't dare call me Pops. (laughs) To use that term to speak of God in the Old Testament would have been blasphemous, disrespectful, Yet Jesus uses the term term as affectionate, as demonstrating fellowship, trust, submission. He talks deeply and intimately with, and he trusts his Abba, his Papa. I said that Jesus always used the term Father when he prayed. That is true, with one exception. On the cross, Mark fifteen thirty four, as he quotes Psalm 22, he uses the generic name God. My God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? Why does Jesus in that moment call him God and not Father? Because in that moment he is bearing the sin of mankind. And God is pouring out his infinite wrath against his son. How could the Father pour out his wrath against his son? How could the Father pour out unrestrained wrath against the Son? And so Jesus calls him God in that instance and not Father. It is that which is, which is abhorrent to Christ. There is, if you will, disharmony with the Father as Jesus becomes the sin bearer and the Father pours out His infinite wrath against His Son. There's a temptation to draw an analogy between parents and children and fathers and daughters. The daddy goes away on a trip and the children miss their daddy while he is gone. Or a father has to discipline a child and he struggles to carry it out even though he knows the discipline is good for the child and that, that's what is going on between God the Father and God the Son. That analogy works. Kind of. Brothers and sisters, we have no means of comprehending the unity of the Trinity or the devastation of that moment when the Son receives the wrath of God. Don't miss one of the lessons here. In the moment before Jesus went to the cross, he went to his daddy for help. Just hours before he endured infinite wrath from omnipotent God, he went to that God and appealed to him for help as his trusted daddy. While Jesus was undiminished deity, he also was true and complete humanity apart from a sin nature. As both God and man, he was designed for fellowship. He was designed for relationship. But there was no one who was corresponding to him in his manhood who was capable of understanding the burden of Christ in that moment. To whom would he turn among his friends that they might comfort him and give him wisdom? And give him encouragement and give him hope. To Judas. To Peter. To any of the other disciples. He had no one. Except the father. And Abba was close. And Abba. Was adequate. And brothers and sisters, if Abba is adequate for Jesus at the most horrific event in the world's history, then he is adequate for you and he is adequate for me to hear us in our burdens and our cries and our weights. When you have an outrageously heavy burden, and some of you do today, you may not have a friend with whom you can share that burden. 
but you have an Abba who is trustworthy, who is faithful, and who is good. You have a daddy, a pops, a papa, who will hear, who cares, and is adequate for your need as he was for Christ. Jesus prays to his father. Secondly, Jesus prays for removal. In these two verses, verses 35 and 36, Jesus makes one request in two different ways in two parallel statements. Notice verse 35. He began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. In the Gospels, the the term hour, when it's used in relationship to Christ, often generally refers to the time of the cross. And that is certainly what he has in mind here. Jesus is asking, if it is possible, let the hour on the clock at which time I should go to the cross, let it pass by without the cross having to be endured. This is a plan that has been in place for all eternity. And Jesus is praying, Lord, Father, Daddy, the minute's coming. Can it pass without having to go through it? With this statement, we get a glimpse of his coming pain. Jesus had no habit of making requests in prayer like this. For him to do so tells us of the magnitude and the bitterness of the anguish and the pain If he could accomplish his messianic mission in any other way, that's what he desired. How great was the suffering that he endured for the sin bearer for him to shrink back in his manhood in this way. If he's pulling back, if he's horrified by the prospect, how great must the anguish be? We also get a glimpse Of his unwavering submission. Notice that he is not making a demand. He is making a request. He wants to avoid the hour of his suffering. If it is in accord with God's plan only. He will not insist on what he wants. As God. He was part of the design and the preparation of the plan. As the God-man, he was submissive to that plan and willing to endure all that Abba had for him. He makes the same request again in verse 36 when he asks, All things are possible. Remove this cup from me. The cup is not just his suffering and death. It is far more than that. It is the pouring out of God's wrath against him. It is God's judgment against him. It is God's infinite, eternal judgment against the sinless Son of God, a member of the Trinity. This cup is God's unrestrained wrath. The psalmist tells about it, talks about it. Psalm 75, verse 8. For a cup 
is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. The wicked have to drink the cup of God's wrath and drain it dry and they cannot. Christ must absorb that wrath. To endure the cup of God's wrath meant that He, the Holy and Sinless One, would be identified with sinful men. He would carry their sin and endure God's infinite, limitless, and eternal, endless wrath and curse that God has prepared for sinners. Jesus' request is simply this. If there is a means by which I can fulfill my messianic mission without the cross and the endurance of your wrath, then let me do it that way. Notice that he says in verse 35, if it were possible, and then in verse 36, he expands that and he says, all things are possible for you. You can do anything. But there's an unspoken caveat there, isn't there? God can do anything He desires as long as it is, as it is consistent with His nature and will. So Jesus, the God-man, was asking His Father for one more examination. Is there any other way apart from sinless God becoming the bearer of an infinite weight of sin and enduring the infinite hatred of God against the, that sin? The implication of Jesus' request is that if there is any other way, then he certainly would do it another way. But there wasn't. God would have to carry the sin and endure the limitless wrath of God. God pouring out his wrath on God. Brothers and sisters, I have looked at this passage all week. And it has been such a bold reminder to me that if Christ pulls away from sin and has such an aversion to sin and the resultant death and hates the contemplation of being forsaken by the Father, it is a helpful reminder for me who longs to be like my Savior. How can we play with sin and think it is a trifle? When it is so abhorrent to our groom, our friend, the one who has recreated us in salvation to be like him. He, in praying this prayer, has demonstrated the true consequences of sin and the appropriate response to sin. Jesus prays to his father. Jesus prays for removal. Jesus thirdly prays with submission. We've already alluded to his submission to the Father's will by what Jesus has implied in this prayer. But notice his overt statement of submission to the Father. Though his great longing is to avoid and to not endure death, with a great contrastive, he says, yet not... What I will, 
but what you will. In John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer, we understand that the advent of Christ and the entire life of Christ was for his own glorification. But from his perspective, his life was for the glory of the Father. In a sense, his life said, what will reveal most greatly and fully the greatness and the grandeur of God? How will this people see his grace, his love, his mercy, his wrath? And so he is willing to subordinate his will so that the Father would be glorified. The cross was about forgiveness and redemption and propitiation and substitution and wrath. But it was also the great demonstration of submission. The Son, in full joy, follows the eternally and agreed will of God, even if that means the just wrath of God is loosed on Him. This prayer Reveals the deity of Christ, but it also reveals something of his humanity, doesn't it? Listen to what Bruce Ware writes in his outstanding book, The Man, Christ Jesus. It is simply impossible to think deeply about these accounts and draw the conclusion that since Jesus was God and since it was impossible for him to sin, his obedience here in the garden was both automatic and easy. Everything in these passages cries for the opposite conclusion. His obedience was anything but automatic and easy. It was rather extremely difficult and hard fought. Praying three times as Jesus did indicates the deep struggle to embrace in that place and time the Father's will that He go to the cross. This battle for belief in the goodness and rightness of the Father's will was not over quickly or easily. If there had been some resolution immediately upon praying the first time, then why pray the second time and then the third? Jesus felt deeply and agonizingly the weight of the suffering He was being called to endure. He longed to avoid it, if at all possible, and so He prayed fervently that God would strengthen Him to do it, leading Him then to embrace fully what the Father had sent Him to do. Brothers and sisters, the cross was not just hard. It was horrific. And it was against everything that Christ was as deity. But, because He was submissive to and in full accord with God's redemptive plan, He did not waver. And he did not regret the cross. You notice the end of the passage? Having prayed his prayer, he received his answer. There is no other way. We must go to the cross. And he got up, awakened the disciples, and marched resolutely, confidently, to the cross, facing the burden of sin, the wrath of God, and His solitary death. And that, friends, is the triumph 
of his submission. Yes, he recoils from the upcoming wrath of God. But there is triumph in his submission to the Father's plan. Listen to what Spurgeon says about Christ's victory in his submission. No clarion blast, nor firing of cannon, nor waving of flags, nor acclamation of multitudes ever announced such a victory as our Lord achieved in Gethsemane. He there won the victory over all the griefs that were upon him and all the griefs that were soon to roll over him like huge Atlantic billows. He there won the victory over death and over even the wrath of God which he was about to endure to the utmost for his people's sake. There is true courage. There is the highest heroism. There is the declaration of the Invincible conqueror in that cry, not as I will, but as thou wilt. With Christ's perfect resignation, there was also his strong resolve. He had undertaken the work of his people's redemption and he would go through with it until he could triumphantly say from the cross, it is finished. As we come to this table, To remember Jesus' death 2,000 years ago. Remember his reticence to be the sin bearer. And to endure the wrath of his eternal Abba. How could Abba pour out his wrath on the Son? And remember the triumph of his submission to the plan. He who hated death and sin fully vanquished both. And provided a means of escape from both sin and death for those of us who trust Him. Father, thank You for this amazing plan of redemption. Thank You for a Savior who is God and able to absorb that wrath. And thank You, Father, that He is man. And He can identify with us. And we likewise can identify with Him. Might we pull away from and have an abhorrence of sin that is reflective of our great Savior. And this evening as we come to this familiar table, might our hearts be riveted again in remembrance of His amazing and oh-so-costly death. Might we not trifle with sin and might we not be apathetic to what He did to redeem us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.